0: Misha here. If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy, an AI expert and in CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them they sent you.
1: A science story, huh? These NYU scientists—they a- it felt And I, I, right. I was so and happy. I, just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that tall. golden
2: moment because science was on my side.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Lilly. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you two stories about what makes us who we are from our appearance to our memories. Our first story this week is from Jean Lebec. It was recorded in July 2017 at the Crane Theater in New York City. The theme of that night was pain.
1: I'm dreaming. My teeth are flying out of my mouth. They soar high above my head, twirling and swirling. I try to grab them. I try to reach them. I jump, but I can't. They dangle in front of me, taunting me, and finally, finally I grab one, but it melts in my hand. I wake up sweating. Something is wrong. My tongue is pushing against a tooth on my lower right jaw. It's loose. It is so loose that I reach in and easily pull it out. I slip out of bed, careful not to wake my husband, Marcel, and I run into the bathroom. I grin in the mirror and damn, you can see it, a big gaping hole. I shove bare feet into snow boots and I throw my coat on over pajamas and I walk down Fifth Avenue to the pharmacy on Ninth Street. It's 5 a.m. and it's snowing The pharmacy is empty, just a couple of people picking up their prescriptions. I walk quickly up and down the aisle of toothpaste and toothbrushes and dental floss, and finally I see it, a small blue container of dental cement. I rush home. I sit on the edge of the toilet, and I force a huge gob of the stuff into the hole, and I glue my tooth back in. Every day, my tooth falls out. And every day, I glue it back. Marcel, please, please just go to the goddamn dentist. It's our daily fight. I promise him I will. I say I will, I will, but I don't. I'm afraid of the dentist. I I hate the dentist. I'm always scared of that moment when the dentist looks in my mouth and can see all my sins. The years when I was a dancer and I starved myself until my gums bled and, you know, smoking too much and drinking too much and not flossing enough and not brushing enough. And then I feel so shitty about myself after every visit that I don't go back and then too much time has passed and I'm too embarrassed to go back, but I have to go. I've stopped really smiling, I have this kind of weird half smile, and I eat on only one side of my mouth, so I go. I am gripping Marcel's hand as the dentist looks at my CAT scan, and I feel naked as his fingers expertly fly over the x-ray of my mouth. And finally he turns to me and he says, your teeth are no longer viable There's too much bone loss. They will continue to loosen, and they will fall out. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but they will. And I'm recommending that you be proactive, extract all of your teeth, and have dentures. Dentures, I can't breathe, not me, no, no, I promise, no. My mother had dentures. She never let us see her without her teeth. But one Saturday morning, very early, I'm eight years old. Her door is open. I hover in the doorway. She's sitting on the edge of the bed. She's 45 years old, but she looks 100. Her face has collapsed. And I watch as she reaches into a glass and grimaces as she adjusts her dentures into place. And I promised myself that would never be me and now it's me and I am covered with shame and I run out of the office. It's cold and it's dark. Marcel and I brace ourselves against the wind and we walk up East 24th Street. He puts his arm around me and he pulls me close and he says, I'm here, I'm here. And I cling to him and let him carry me to the F train Every night, I search the web. I look at dental videos obsessively as though they're pornography. And finally, I type in the words, innovative dentures, and a name pops up, Dr. Paulo Malo in Portugal, a dentist who has designed a groundbreaking procedure where dentures are actually attached to implants never to be removed. And Dr. Malo has a clinic in Rutherford, New Jersey, specializing in his technique. Marcel and I go to Rutherford, New Jersey. My exam is quick and efficient, and I'm a candidate for this procedure. And I find out that the cost of this procedure is $70,000. Yes, none of it covered by insurance. We can't afford this. My teeth have become like the other woman in our marriage because it's all we talk about. We talk about it constantly. I have to get to the other side of this. And one morning, I'm just skimming through a travel magazine, and I come across an article called, you know, Dental Medical Tourism. Never heard of it. And I read about these people who have traveled to foreign countries to have dental work done or medical work done that they can't afford to do in the United States. And the article lists all these organizations that help international patients. And they list countries that are recommended, approximate costs. And I know, I know that I have to do this. I research two doctors in Costa Rica who have been doing the procedure that Dr. Malo designed for many years. It's their main specialty. They're highly recommended and the cost is manageable. And as afraid as I am about having surgery done in a foreign country, I am haunted by those words. Your teeth will continue to loosen. So, Marcel and I fly to San Jose, Costa Rica to meet and consult with Dr. Ferrer and Dr. Sons. We are in the Hospital Catalica. We are on the fourth floor sitting on a really long couch. Murals, beautiful large murals, line the hallways. Nuns and nurses just kind of swirl by. Marcel is really happy. He's cheerfully talking to a couple sitting next to us in Spanish. My heart is beating so loudly that I can hear it in my ears. My hands are so sweaty and I keep trying to straighten the wrinkles out on my white linen dress. I jump every time they call a name and it's 12.05 and I think if they don't call me in one more minute, I'm out of here, I'm leaving. And then the door opens, and Dr. Ferrer comes out to greet me. Dr. Ferrer is a lot younger than I imagined. He's tall and he's lanky, he's got black curly hair, he's really quick to smile, he would fit right into Williamsburg, (laughs) he would. Dr. Sines is older, he speaks slowly and he listens carefully. They ask me questions, I talk. I cry, they hand me tissues were a match. They explained the operation to me in great detail. It will be a five hour surgery. The first thing that's going to happen is they will extract all my teeth. And then four Zimmer screws made in Germany will be implanted in my upper jaw. And four Zimmer screws will be implanted in my bottom jaw. And a bridge of beautiful teeth will be attached, never to be removed. You know, I'm listening, but I get really, really stuck on the idea of z- Zimmer screws that are made in Germany because I'm Jewish and <laughs> growing up, my mother boycotted anything made in Germany. And I'm thinking, oh my God, a head of German screws. She didn't talk to my aunt Sue for two weeks because she bought Goldens mustard. <laughs> It's, it's, it's 9 a.m., it's the morning of my operation, it's March 12, a Thursday, 2015. I'm being prepped. The anesthesiologist says, okay sweetie, take a deep breath, and she inserts the IV. She is beautiful and she is wearing really sexy high heels and I say to her, You're beautiful and you're wearing sexy high heels. I want your shoes. And she laughs, I'm so glad she laughs because I want her to like me and bring me to the other side, put me to sleep. The room is getting busy, they are ready to begin. Dr. Sines comes over to me and he holds my hand and he said, Jean, I just want you to know, I want you to know that when you wake up you won't have any teeth, but I don't want you to be afraid because it is temporary. And I slide my tongue around my teeth and say goodbye. Just as I'm about to fall asleep, I feel this pain between my shoulder blades. It's kind of like one of those, it's like a gas pain, like one of those lost farts. And I think, oh, God, please don't let me be that American that farted during surgery. It's over. I I hear voices. Dr. Ferrer helps me into the wheelchair, and he says, Jean, it's perfect. It went perfectly. My lips are so swollen. I have over hundreds of stitches in my mouth, and I am so grateful when the nurse slips a surgical mask over my face, because I don't want Marcel to see me this way. Marcel's wheeling me down the corridor of the hospital, and at the elevator, our eyes meet. I am so happy I have this mask on. And he looks at me and he says, babe, babe, your hair really looks beautiful today. It will be three days before my teeth are attached. I miss my teeth. My face has collapsed. Words come out like bubbles. I I spill soup like a baby I look a hundred years old, my face has collapsed. I spent hours, tedious hours in Dr. Ferrer's office because meticulous measurements have to be taken in order for them to reconstruct my mouth. I say, I look a hundred years old. He tries to make me laugh, he tells silly jokes. What's the difference between a toothbrush and a teeth brush? He sings Beatles songs with a Spanish accent. I say, I look a hundred years old. He says, No. You look like you're newborn, waiting for beautiful teeth. It's finally, finally, the day of the attachment. The pressure is unbearable. The pain is unbearable, and just when I think I cannot bear this one more minute, it's over, and Dr. Ferrer hands me a mirror, and he says, it's perfect, Jean, it's perfect, and I look in the mirror, and my face is back, and I smile, I really, really, really smile, and my mother's face is in the mirror, her face is in my face. And we're both really, really smiling. And it is perfect. And it's beautiful. And I'm really, really smiling. Thank you.
3: That was Jean Lebec. Born and bred in Brooklyn, New York, Jean is a Moth Story Slam champion who has been featured on New York-area storytelling shows such as Risk, Yums the Word, and Take Two, as well as podcasts such as Risk and a week-long artist residency on Governor's Island. She's presently working on a solo show. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor.
4: Virtue Labs is a new hair care brand with the goal of giving everyone the best hair scientifically possible. That means more bounce, more shine, more strength, and more life for your hair. And right now, you can only find it in Virtue Labs' line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Not to mention, each formula was created to address specific issues like heat damage, frizz, or thinning hair. In clinical testing, Virtue found a 67% reduction in frizz after four washes and a 95% reparation of split-ins after five applications. Ready to experience it? Listeners can now try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping with the code COLLIDER. Visit VirtueLabs.com to place your order. It's time to start treating our hair with a little more humanity. It's time for Virtue. Virtue.
3: Welcome back. Our second story today is from Michael Lemonick. It was recorded in September 2017 at Caveat in New York City. The theme of that night was New Beginnings.
2: A couple of years ago, a woman approached me on the street and introduced herself. I'm Aline Johnson, she said. I don't know if you remember me, but have you happened to hear what happened to my sister? And uh, it turns out this introduction was completely unnecessary because even as she approached me, I started flashing back to middle school. Aline Johnson and I played in the orchestra together, and this middle-aged woman who was approaching me, um, I began to visualize as a 12-year-old girl lugging her cello into the orchestra room. I could hear the voice of the director saying, Aline Johnson, stop fooling around and tune up your cello. I could I mean I could hear it, and and actually listening back, the woman had a midwestern accent I didn't know it at the time so so I was having these two things going on at once, and I will tell you what happened to Aline Johnson's sister, but I have to tell you that this experience of seeing her in both in both ways as the woman in front of me and the woman in middle school the the girl in middle school, that kind of stuff happens to me all the time it happens for one reason, because I have a really good, vivid memory of events in the past, a very detailed memory. But it's also because I live in the town where I grew up, and so there are memory triggers everywhere. I see the faces of people walking down the street that I knew in the 1960s. Believe it or not, you probably believe it. And, uh, <laughs> And the '70s, and the '80s, and every decade since then, and and those trigger memories of my encounters with those people. Uh, I, storefronts and sidewalks and street corners. I go to the local shopping center and I see the place where I held a girl's hand for the first time, and it just comes back to me. It's very moving. Uh, it was an exciting thing. At the age of 14, um, I cross the street at Washington Road and Nassau, and I flash back to third grade when the crossing guard yelled at me for not following his instructions. These things I mean there it happens all the time and you'd think it'd be overwhelming, but it's actually not it's it's kind of comforting in a way It's like reading a diary that you've been keeping since before you could read and before you could write Uh, It's the story of my life, and of course that's the most important story in the world (laughs) To to me Um, I Try not to um, Regale people with these stories uh, Too often because it's not that important to them. It's like telling people your dreams. Uh, you know, last night I dreamt I was an ice cream cone, except I was riding on a horse and I was wearing a tuxedo. You know, and that's really intensely interesting to me, but for other people, it's just that just I the having the same impact. <laughs> but my memories are really important to me. That's what I'm trying, trying to say to you. And that is why what Aline Johnson's story um, uh, why it was so upsetting to me to hear, and so so sort of profound. What happened to Eileen Johnson's sister was this: uh, a few years earlier, before we we uh, ran into each other, Lonnie Sue Johnson had come down with a brain infection, viral encephalitis, and it's a very serious infection, and it might have killed her, uh, but it didn't. Her friends got her to the hospital in time, but when she emerged from her fever. Um, she had profound amnesia. She was what neuroscientists would call densely amnesic. And that's because the virus had attacked a part of her brain, the medial temporal lobes, and especially the hippocampus, where memories uh, are consolidated and kind of stored away. And without that functioning, she could no longer remember most of her past. She couldn't remember that she'd been married for 10 years. Uh, She could not remember that her father had died a couple of decades earlier. In fact, when they told her about it, she grieved all over again for him, even though she had at the time. So it's this terrible situation. She cannot remember her past. But it was even worse than that. Lonnie Sue Johnson could also not form new memories based on her experiences. Uh, So they told her her father died and she grieved. And five minutes later, she looked around the room and said, where's daddy? And they had to tell her all over again. And she grieved again. And so, uh, so she could not, She could not form new memories. If you met her and left the room and came back, she would have no idea she'd ever seen you before. And you'd go out and come back a dozen times and she would still not know. So this just seemed terrible to me, Um, but it was not unfamiliar because when I was in college, when I was a freshman in college, in uh, introductory psychology, I had read about and heard the story of H.M., this guy who in the 50s had his medial temporal lobes in his hippocampus destroyed through surgery, not through um, a brain infection, but he had exactly the same symptoms. And in fact, he was literally the textbook case of this kind of amnesia, uh, because before then, nobody knew what that part of the brain did. Afterward, they knew, unfortunately for him. um, And I read about him and I was just haunted by this story. You know, what would it be like? My memories are so important to me. What would it be like not to be able to access them? I mean, who I am, is really based on my experiences and the people I knew, all the, all the things that made me who I am today. If I couldn't access those, you know, who would I be? And as a science journalist, I had come back to that story a number of times, and I always just wondered what was that like? Um, I never got a chance to interview H.M., he died before I, I could, but now here was Aline Johnson standing in front of me, offering me the chance to do that with her sister. She wanted me to write about her. She wanted to publicize the case to draw attention to brain research. And of course, I wanted to do this. It was, a, it was an amazing opportunity. So a few uh, weeks later, I found myself at the family home, knocking on the door, very apprehensive, what would this person be like? Um, how, how do I talk to her? And it turns out I need not have worried. I knocked on the door, I walked in, and this woman sitting at a table, the dining room table, looked up at me, and her face beamed. She, Gave the biggest smile you could imagine. She said, hello, hello, come on over. Would you like to see my drawings? Do you like music? She was just so engaging and so warm. And so I came over and I looked at her drawings and there were these elaborate, beautiful uh, uh, drawings of people and stars and moons and horses and airplanes interspersed with words and letters of the alphabet. It was very, very strange kind of stuff, but I didn't have a chance to think about it because she said, do you like music? Do, do, do you like to sing? Do you like the alphabet? Have you ever sung a song of the alphabet? I said, no, I don't, I don't know what that means. She said, I'll show you. And so she launched into this song. She said, and forgive my voice, she sang, artists beautifully creating delightful experiences. And she went on to the end of the alphabet, one word for each letter of the alphabet and she was improvising the tune and the words as she went. It was was amazing. Um, So, uh, I was really beginning to understand that this woman had more going on in her head than I I could have imagined. But, I came back and and, uh, uh, met with her again and met with the scientists who were studying her and met mostly with the sister uh, and their mother, who who has since died, to tell me her story, because she couldn't tell me her own story. what I realized was that the music and the artwork were uh, didn't come from nowhere because Lonnie Sue Johnson had been a very successful illustrator. She had drawn covers for the New Yorker magazine and for stories in the New York Times and book covers and uh, uh, artwork for corporate clients. She was really, really successful in her field. She was also a, a very talented amateur musician. She played the viola. When she was a sophomore in high school, she would sit in with the Princeton University Orchestra. She was good enough to do that. Um, she also, it turns out, was a private pilot. That's why the planes were in the, in the pictures. She owned two planes, and she flew all over the uh, the Northeastern US. And she was a um, a writer. She wrote a column for the local newspaper up in Cooperstown, New York, where she lived. And she was um, a businesswoman, a small businesswoman. She ran her art business. But also, I mean, as this, as if she didn't have enough to do, she ran an organic dairy on the farm uh, where she lived in Cooperstown. So she was this amazingly accomplished woman who had expertise in many, many different areas, unrelated areas, but a lot of of them involved creativity, as opposed to H.M. who basically, because he suffered from severe epilepsy and had this operation when he was 27, he had no hobbies, he had no special areas of knowledge. So it became clear to me that this was this was an opportunity for neuroscientists to learn much more than they had. They learned a lot of basic stuff from him. But with a patient like this, who they were now studying, they could delve much more deeply into the subtleties of memory and creativity. And they were doing that. And so I went along to uh, to sessions of testing and talked to the scientists. And it began to dawn on me as I did that, that my initial idea that somebody with no memory would have lost herself. In fact, the, the working title of this book I was deciding to work on was The Woman Who Lost Herself. I thought it was very clever, and based on my own experience, that's what must have happened, and my editor liked it, so that was the working <laughs> title. Um, very important to make your editor happy. And, but as I went along, I realized you know, there's, there's something wrong with this conception. And every time I met her, she told me the same jokes and sang the same songs, the alphabet song once. She actually um, performed the alphabet. So she formed her body as best she could into the letters as she sang the song. So this was A and, and B, I can't even do it. But, and, and, and she, she would break up laughing because she was having so much fun. More than once I watched her end a, or, or temporarily halt a testing session because she cracked the scientists up. She would make jokes in the middle of their tests, and they would just have to stop because they were laughing too hard. She would, they would put her in the fMRI, and she was so happy, she would like dance, lying on her back, just sort of dance. And they had, Lonnie Sue, keep still. We need to take a picture of your brain. So she was this delightful, engaging person. Um, once I did a formal interview, or I tried to, and it wasn't, wasn't very easy uh, because the conversations were very circular, and, and she kept asking me if I liked music and so on, But Every so often she would come out with something out of left field that just blew me away. So once we were talking and she said, um, you know, flying a plane is very much like playing the piano. I said, well, why is that? She said, well, when you fly a plane, you have your hands on the wheel or the stick and you have your feet on the pedals operating the rudders and you sway back and forth with the wind and the sky. And and when you play piano, your hands are on the keyboard and your feet are on the foot pedals and you sway back and forth with music. I'm thinking where did that come from? There's, there's a poet inside there. Um, m- my idea about memory was, was just, it was just so misguided, or it seemed to be. And the situation now is that her memory has not gotten any better. Uh, if you ask her about it, she'll say, well, yeah, sometimes, sometimes I forget things. My memory's not too good. Point is that she has no understanding of how profound her memory loss is And so she doesn't miss it. She does not miss her memory. And while her knowledge of her own experiences is gone, she doesn't miss that either. She doesn't know what it feels like to have an intact memory. uh, I happen to be colorblind. I had to be told that this is a green shirt this morning. Um, And so you would think, oh, that's terrible. You know, he has no experience of the richness of color in the world. But I've never seen it, so I don't miss it. I mean, I mean, things seem fine the way they are, and and I now think of Lonnie Sue Johnson that way. That um, she's missing this huge part of her of her mental life, but she doesn't know it's gone, and she doesn't care that it's gone, and she's happy. So I had to change the title of the book, um, and I had to change the way I think about my own memory. Not that it's not still important to me. The other day. I was in the supermarket and this woman in her 50s or so um, waved hello and this was somebody I had known when she was a seven-year-old girl and I was maybe 10 years old. We used to play hide-and-seek and Um, and I could see the young girl in my mind as I was looking at the not-so-young woman uh, smiling at me and it felt great. I just loved doing that but I, I think I now know that if I couldn't do that, things would be okay. Thank you.
3: that was Michael Lemenick Michael is chief opinion editor at Scientific American previously he was a senior science writer at Time Magazine he's also the author of seven books including most recently The Perpetual Now a story of amnesia, memory, and love he also teaches at Princeton University and lives in Princeton, New Jersey where he grew up If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country. The Story Glider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The shows featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Aaron Barker and Paula Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to The Crane and Caveat for hosting these shows, and to my teeth and memories for remaining sort of intact. For now. Thanks for listening.
4: Virtue Labs is a hair care brand with a vision to give everyone their best hair with the help of an incredible new protein called Alpha Keratin 60 KU. Alpha Keratin 60 KU is a whole human protein that's identical to the keratin in your own hair. As a result, it can fill in cracks from damage to change your hair's quality and appearance forever. Try Alpha Keratin 60KU exclusively in Virtue Labs' shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Just visit VirtueLabs.com and use the code COLLIDER to try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping.